Well, I noticed that there's one genre of movie that became very popular when I was growing up, and it was the genre of superheroes. When I was a little kid, there were not that many superhero movies, and then all of a sudden, Avengers 1, Avengers 2, Avengers 3, 5, 7, 12, 13, a bunch of Marvel movies, then a bunch of DC movies. You guys, are you guys superhero people? No? Yes? Is it, is it like too old for you, or is it like younger kids do superheroes, or it's like older kids? What do you think? Older kids. See, that's funny because it's like right beneath when I was growing up. It was like a little bit too young. And then for you guys, it's a little bit too old. So we missed it. It's all right. Um, some of our leaders might be into superheroes. Is Juan into you? Yeah. See, that's your demographic right there. You're Jose, Juan, and Lewis. That's the superhero generation right there. But I think there's a real, oh, and Mark McGill. Um, <laughs> different superhero generation, if you know what I mean. Um, we're talking about Superman, not Captain America. Um, But anyway, it's interesting because uh, everybody likes superhero movies to some extent. Maybe you don't like superhero movies with capes and stuff, but you like watching action movies. Or maybe you like watching romantic movies where there's a hero. There's a main person in the plot who's like, you want them to fall in love. You, you want them to win the war. You want them to, maybe if it's a spy movie, you want them to survive and you want them to kill the villain, right? I think that's just kind of something we all look for. We all look for stories. We actually tend to want to be the center of all the stories, but there is a story that is not a fake story. It's not fiction. It's a real story, and it has all the plot points of a superhero movie, it has the plot points of a problem, a villain, a hero, a solution, all that wrapped into one, and it is actually something that happens in real life. And what tonight we're going to do is look at that story. What I want to do is Look at a big picture of everything that goes on on this planet. I don't know if you've realized this, but there is a story. There is a villain. There is a problem. There's a hero, and there's also a solution, and there's going to be resolution to that. And we're going to look at that big idea here in Isaiah chapter 25. We're skipping a few chapters in Isaiah, but we're going to be looking at Isaiah 25 because it gives us the answer to life's biggest questions. And life's biggest problems is what we're going to talk about tonight. So, love for you to grab your Bibles. Look at Isaiah chapter 25. It's the hero story that we need because we have a big problem. The problem really is wrapped up in a lot of what Isaiah is talking about in this book. He's going after these people and he's saying to them, you are in sin. I don't know if we cover that. We cover that, especially that first sermon, Isaiah 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. What did he tell the Israelites? God gave you his covenant and his rules. And what did they do? They broke it. They were given the rules and they didn't follow it. Same thing with us. We're giving God's rules and we don't follow it. And that causes a problem. Then we looked at Isaiah 6 where we saw God is holy. He's perfect. And that's a problem for us if we're sinful people. We need God to come and do something to save us. Then the next thing we looked at in Isaiah 7, 8, and 9, last time we were together, we saw that God is offering a solution in himself. That God himself is going to come, live as a human being, and be the solution. What we're going to look at today is the problem that faces every nation, every people group, and that's the problem of death. That is the ultimate problem for all of us, and I know that's a big heavy thing, but if you think about it, that is what's wrong with this world when it comes down to it. Death, that we will live for a short amount of time and then we'll die, body and spirit separate. And there's some reasons for that, but what we're going to see here is God promises to fix that problem, to come and fix the problem of death, the biggest problem we all have. So, it's talking about Isaiah 7, 8, and 9. That was when Jesus has promised to come. He's even promised more in Isaiah chapter 11. But we're skipping all the way from Isaiah 10 to Isaiah 24. 
And it's helpful because we just read this in the DBR, right? We're just reading the book of Isaiah. What do we find in Isaiah 10 all the way through 24? Well, God is basically saying this to a bunch of different people groups. You are in sin for this. You are going to experience judgment for this. He says to the Assyrians, you're going to be judged. The Babylonians, to the Philistines, to the Moabites, to the people who live in Damascus, to the people who live in Cush, in Egypt, in Jerusalem, in Tyre, in Sidon. If you remember reading this in the DBR, it was like, what country's next? What's the next country that God's going to say bad things about? And then in chapter 24, he says, the whole world is going to get destroyed. There needs to be judgment over the whole world because all have sinned. Everyone is under this problem. But in chapter 25, what we're going to look at right now, there's some hope. Look at chapter 25, verse 1. It says, O Lord, you are my God. Isaiah's talking to God here. saying, God, you are my God, and I will exalt you. I will praise your name. That sounds like a weird thing. Why? He's just been talking about all the bad stuff that's going to happen. Well, he says, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. Here's the first thing that you need to know about God's judgment and all the the things that God is bringing to this earth for sin, I need you to know this, that God has planned it. God's planned it. Think that through. All the judgment that God brought on all those different nations and promised to them and to our world today, here's what you need to know. God planned that. It's all part of God's plan. It's not some bad thing that happened that God was taken aback by. It's like, oh, I had no idea they were gonna do sinful things. No, it was all a part of the plan from the beginning. And Isaiah says these plans are formed from of old, from before the world ever began. Faithful and sure. What is he talking about? Verse two, for you have made the city a heap. You know what a heap is? Imagine a big city. Imagine even this building, right? What do we do to turn this building into a heap, a pile, right? Well, knock it down, right? Blow out all the doors and the windows and everything. And then it's just one big pile of rocks. That's what he says God's gonna do to the city, right? What city are we talking about here? I think it's interesting. I don't think he's talking about one particular city. He has just said all the cities of the earth are gonna face his judgment for sin. So I think what he's talking about here is that there's a problem that has pervaded the whole world and God has to do something about it. He says the fortified city will become a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. He's saying there's gonna be a problem. God's gonna bring this on the world. Verse three, therefore strong peoples will glorify you. Seems like the people that God judges, something is going to happen to them. Their heart is going to change. The cities of ruthless nations will fear you, for you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. Basically saying all the enemies of God's people, it's like this terrible storm. It's like this intense heat going against them, against these righteous people. What is God going to do about it? Look at verse six. It says, on this mountain, On the mountain of the Lord, God will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. What is he talking about? Look at verse seven. This is the key to everything we're gonna study tonight. Check out verse seven. It says this. And he, God, will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all the peoples. What's the covering? What's the shade over all the people? the veil that is spread over all the nations. What is the veil? What is the thing that's spread over all the nations? Verse eight, he will swallow up death forever. That's a problem that you face. That's a problem I face. Every single person who ever lived, guess what they faced? Death. It's a problem for all people. It says God is gonna swallow up death. If you think about what death is, 
it, it's something that feels like it swallows people up, right? Think about it. When someone dies, it's like they were alive, then in the moment, dead. They're like swallowed up by death. Here's what God says. I am going to swallow death up. It's a total reversal. It says, the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. The reproach of his people he'll take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. See, when we look at Isaiah, we think, okay, this is a long book that happened a long time ago, right? This is 66 chapters. This was written thousands of years ago. What does it have to do with me? Well, Isaiah talks about the problem that every person faces. And here's the problem that you'll face and I'll face, death. Death. What will God do about it? I said that it's like a superhero movie where you got a problem, you got a villain, and you've got a hero who's going to fix the problem. What will God do about death? Well, here's what he promises. He promises to destroy death in the end. Just like last time, the response for us was like, okay, if God's going to send Jesus, we need to trust God. We need to trust in Jesus. That's the same message tonight. You need to trust God and put your full hope in God. You need to put your full faith in Jesus to save you from death because that was his mission. That's the big story of the whole world, that God created man, and they're perfect in his image. And then what do they do? They sinned. They chose to do what was wrong. God punishes them. And we're all living in that world of punishment. But God's going to do something to make it right. That's why you get hurt. That's why you get sick. That's why your grandparents die. That's why you're going to die one day. All of it is a result of Adam and Eve's sin. It's all a result of Adam and Eve's sin, that we're living in a broken world things are wrong. What is God going to do about it? Did you know that God's going to make everything wrong right? Everything that's bad and evil, he's going to reverse it. He's going to show complete justice. Everyone who dies, he's going to do something about that. That's what this verse is promising, that God's going to swallow up death forever. Problem is, what's happening here is God is judging these people for their sin. Verse 10, drop down to verse 10, it says, for the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain. It's talking about Jerusalem here. It says, in Moab, that's one of the evil countries that we've just talked about earlier in the book, it says, it will be trampled down in his place. Like a straw is trampled down in a dunghill. Okay, I need you to imagine something. This is really gross, okay? But I need you to imagine this for me. You know what straw is? And it's like that, you know, hay, straw, you know what I'm talking about, right? Straw. When you get a bunch of hay and it gets on the ground, you know, like after a fall fest type thing and the hay's on the ground, maybe you've been to a pumpkin patch, right? It's October, right? There's, there's hay on the ground, okay? That's straw. Um, now I want you to imagine a little piece of straw like that getting put in a big pile of poop. That's what a dunghill is. So we see dunghill, okay? That's where people would poop, take the bucket, right? Throw it on the dunghill, okay? So are we grossed out officially? That's what he's talking about. He says, these nations will be like a little tiny straw that gets thrown in the big dunghill, the big thing of poop, and then, for good measure, they get trampled on. Animals step on this. Are we grossed out yet? Okay, that's what he's saying. Further, keep reading. Verse 11. He, you might think that's God. Nope, that's not God. That's the little piece of straw. Okay, now imagine this. He will spread out his hands in the midst of it. Okay? Little piece of straw spreading out its hands in the midst of what? Poop. I'm not kidding. That's what it says. Okay? As a swimmer, this is getting really gross, spreads his hands out to swim. Maybe a little butterfly, a little breaststroke, a little freestyle, right? Swimming in poop. Okay? <laughs> Are we, that's what he's saying, okay? I know you didn't know that was in the Bible. It's right there, okay? 
He says, that's what it's like for all these kingdoms that want to fight against God. God's going to take them like little pieces of straw, put them in a big poop pile, and they're going to try to swim out of it. Okay. Gross. He says, but the Lord will lay low his pompous pride. What is pride? Right? It's when we say, I'm better than other people. And in this scenario, it's when these people say, I don't need to listen to God. God doesn't get to tell me what to do. I get to live my life however I want to live it. I get to follow my heart to do whatever sin I want to do. God can't tell me what to do. God can't judge me. You can't judge me. The Bible can't tell me what to do. I am going to live however I want. That is the pompous pride that Moab had. It says those people will be laid low, even with the skill of his hand. Verse 12 says the high fortifications of his wall, the big things he trusts in, God's going to bring down. He'll lay it low and cast it to the ground, to the dust. Point number one is this. I want you to expect God to come and punish all sinful pride. I want you to expect this. Once you expect God to come and punish all sinful pride, all of it, not just the Moabites, not just the Edomites and the Assyrians and all the nations that we talked about. No, not, not just that, but yours and mine. God is going to punish all sinful pride because he's just. Verse one says, these are plans that God has made from of old. I know we don't think about it that often, but I need you to realize God has planned this out. He knows What's going to happen? He knows that he's going to punish. Isaiah chapter 46, I want you to write that down. Isaiah 46, 8 to 10. It's a passage we're going to look at a few weeks from now. But it says, remember this and stand firm. So don't ever forget this truth. Recall this to mind, you sinners, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. This is Isaiah 46, verses 8 to 10. Verse 10 says, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I shall accomplish all my purpose. God is saying that he knows everything that's going to take place. He knows the end. Think that through the timeline. He knows the end of the world from before the beginning of the world. That means God knows all these things. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows all of it. Think that through. God knows everything that's going to happen. The end from the beginning says he's going to take these proud people and cast them down. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 12. I want you to write that down. Isaiah 2, 12. Here's what it says. The Lord of hosts has a day. There's a day planned against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. I know you might not think of that often, but God has a day where he's planning on judging all the people who are proud of their sin. Here's a question for you. Are you one of those people that is proud of your sin? It's one thing to be a sinner. That's bad enough. It's another thing to be proud of your sin. You're lying. Are you proud of it? Do you brag to other people about the sin that you commit? Do you brag at school about the bad jokes you tell? Do you brag about the bad shows you watch? Are you like proud of the things that you know are wrong, but do you proudly display them for the world? There's a lot of sins that our world loves to take pride in. Just one day, he's going to take all that pride that is so great, and he's going to put them like a little piece of straw and a big piece of big pile of poop and they're going to have to swim around, right? What's the picture? God's going to do something terrible. He's going to execute some justice here. Are you proud of your sin? Think that through. Are you proud of your lying? Are you proud of the things that you do that maybe your parents don't know about but you brag about it to your friends? Are you proud of your sin? It's a dangerous place to be. God says he's going to destroy these people that are proud of their sin. God says about these Moabites, 
Isaiah chapter 16, verse 6, we kind of skipped this section, but it says, we've heard of the pride of Moab, these proud people, how proud he is of his arrogance, his pride, his insolence, and his idle boasting. He is not right. I want you to ask yourself the question, does that describe me at all? What God says about Moab, does that describe me at all? Arrogant, proud, thinking I'm better than the person next to me, thinking I'm smarter, I'm funnier, looking down at people, boasting about what you have, bragging about the gifts that God has given you, acting like you earned them somehow when you realize that God just gave them to you in the first place. Boasting, pride, that's what he's saying about these people. Be careful about that. The reason I tell you to expect this is because this is happening and this is going to happen whether you think about it or not, okay? Because we could do this and you could live your whole life and never think God's gonna judge pride. You could think that, that doesn't change the fact that God is going to judge pride, okay? What this needs to be for you is a warning, a check for you. Am I a proud person? Because sometimes I think when we don't expect accountability or we don't expect to be judged or graded on something, we don't do a very good job. Case in point is when you get assignments, you guys have assignments where your teacher says, hey, make sure you do this every week, but they never check the work. You guys have that? Yeah? How, uh, how well do you do at doing those assignments that never get checked? How do people do with those? They don't do them very often, right? You just don't do them very often. Maybe some of your parents make you do it, but think about it. If your teacher said, hey, I've got these assignments for you, but I'm never gonna check them, it's kind of optional, right? Who does optional homework, right? A couple of you wanted to raise your hands, yeah? No, you don't. <laughs> your teacher ever say, oh, it's optional. Yeah, you can kind of do it. Nobody does that. I never do it anyway. Because if I don't think it's gonna get checked, I'm not gonna do it, right? I'll, I'll read the book, you know, especially when I got a, you know, got some quiz on it or a paper on it. I get that. I'll read that book. But if it's a book that's like, oh, hey, we're never going to ask you. You don't really have to read it. Um, so there you go. If there's no expectation of judgment or evaluation, I'm just never going to, I'm just never going to do it, right? You're probably like that too. Here's the thing. God says you need to expect that there is an evaluation here. The world thinks there's no evaluation. There's no test. There is a test. There is a test. You need to realize there's a test at the end. Were we proud? The New Testament says this about pride. James chapter four, verse six says, God says that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James four, six, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James flips that and he says, you know what you need to do, what I need to do, we need to submit to God. What does that mean? If God tells us something to do, guess what we're gonna do? We're gonna do it. Just like if you're on a baseball team and your coach tells you to run laps, you're gonna do it. Just like if you're on a soccer team and you're told to run sprints, if your coach says to do it, submission means I'm gonna do it no matter what. Even if I don't like it, even if it's hard, right? When your teacher says, hey, make sure that you do all of the questions for math, not just the odds that are in the back of the book, but the evens too, and you're gonna be tested on it, okay? Well, then that means, submission means, yes, I'll do it, absolutely, I'll do it. I need to do it because I know there's gonna be a test. There is something of that here. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil. He'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. See, the amazing thing about this is that if you're a proud person, if you are proud and you don't care about your sin, if, if you turn and you turn to God and you repent, here's the crazy thing. Verse eight of James four says that when you draw near to God, guess what God does? God will draw near to you. That is something you and I don't deserve. But God says, I will do it. If you will repent of your sin, if you will humble yourself, guess what the good news is? God will draw near to you. 
cleanse your hands, wash them, right? Just like when you're playing basketball or football, your hands get all, you know, grimy and black. You need to go wash your hands before you eat food, right? Here's what James says, wash your hands, cleanse your hands of all the sin, repent of the sin, purify your hearts. God says some amazing things in the book of Isaiah about pride and humility. I want you to write a couple more verses down. Isaiah chapter 57, Isaiah 57, 15. Isaiah 57, 15, God says, which Isaiah says this first, he says, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Here's what God says. I dwell in high and holy places. And also, so I dwell in the highest of heavens. I am so holy, so removed from the whole world, but guess where else I live? I live up there in heaven, and also I live with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, not with the proud. Does I live with those who are of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. God is so holy, so perfect, but guess what? If you're a humble person, if you submit to God, if you repent of your sin, guess what God will do? God will live with you too. That is a grace that we don't deserve. The last chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah 66, one and two. Isaiah 66, one and two. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. It's like where I put my feet at night, right? It's, it's just down there to me. What is this house that you built for me? What's the temple? I, I don't care that much about it. What is this place of my rest? All these things my hand have made. So all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. Where's God going to look? Is he looking at a big, expensive, fancy temple? No. Here's where God will look. He who is humble and contrite. Contrite means repentant of sin. He'll look to the humble. He'll look to the contrite in spirit and to the one who trembles at my word. To the one who's willing to listen to God's word and fear God's word. Does that describe you? Are you a person who's humbled yourself before God? Isaiah says a lot about that. Also, the book of Psalms, Psalm 138, verse 6, Psalm 138, 6, it says, For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. He cares about the humble people. But the haughty, the prideful people, he just knows them from afar. God will never, ever hear your prayer if you are a proud person always looking down on other people. He's just not going to listen. He doesn't want to be near you if we're proud. He, he, he hates it. Case in point, in the New Testament, Jesus told a story about a tax collector, a sinful guy, and he told a story about a Pharisee. And the punchline to all that was, the tax collector, he prayed, he repented. The Pharisee told God how great the Pharisee was, right? It's not a good thing to do to God. Don't brag to God in your prayers. It's not very impressive to him. But here's what, the, he, well, here's what Jesus says, Luke 18, 13 to 14. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but he beat his breast. He hit himself in the chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus says, that man went down to his house justified. He got saved. The other guy didn't. The other guy, not right with God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself, he'll be exalted. The big first lesson of this chapter in chapter 25 is we need to see that God has a day where he will judge prideful people. And if that describes you, you need to turn right now and humble yourself before God. And if you are one of those humble people, this is an encouragement because everyone who walks all over you, everyone who treats you bad in their pride, everyone who makes fun of you, everybody who, who treats you like trash or whatever. Okay, here's what it says. God has a day for them. The people that oppress the Israelites here, God has a day for them. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, they were evil. 
I mean, they were doing horrible things to the Israelites. Guess what God says? I have a day for them too. This is your day for punishment, but their day is coming later. What about this big ultimate thing? Look at Isaiah 25, verse 7 again. Why don't you check that out? This is the, the center of what we're studying tonight. It says, he will swallow up on this mountain, Mount Zion, Jerusalem. He will swallow up the covering, the veil, the thing that covers the whole world. What is that? Death. Verse 8 says, he will swallow up death forever. What mountain are we talking about here? Did you notice that? On this mountain, what is he talking about? The mountain of uh, Mount Zion, right? Jerusalem. Okay, was there ever a time that maybe God did something on Mount Zion that defeated death forever? I want you to just think this through. Has God done that? Right? Well, yes and no. Right? Where, where did Jesus get crucified? Mount Zion. Where did Jesus get put in the grave? Mount Zion. Where did Jesus rise again to defeat death for us? Mount Zion. Where is Jesus coming back next to defeat death forever? Well, Mount Zion, okay? You see that? How even in, from our perspective, Jesus has done something in his life, death, and resurrection to defeat death. The New Testament's clear about that. But the ultimate fulfillment of that is gonna come in the future. We stand in between the fulfillments where Jesus has done something to fix the problem of death. But one day, everyone, every real Christian, will be free from death. Point number two is this. Wait for Jesus to destroy sin and death forever. Wait for Jesus to destroy sin and death forever. You might be wondering, why you say wait? Well, after you look at that, look at verse number nine. Verse number nine, Isaiah 25, nine. It says, it will be said on that day. So that day that God swallows death up forever. Here's the song that people are gonna sing. Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. What does it mean to wait in the Bible? You see it a lot of times in the Psalms. We want to wait on the Lord. What does that mean? Does that mean just to sit there and, you know, don't think about anything, live your life normally? No. It means to constantly, steadfastly, what that means is, is doing it hardcore every day, be trusting God while you wait. Waiting and trusting. Right now, you cannot fix the death problem in this world, right? You'll have grandparents, family members who will die, and it's horrible. It's the worst thing. You can't save them. You can't do anything about that. What we're called to do is wait on Jesus to come back, because when Jesus comes back, he will solve the problem. But even in the past, where they didn't even see this yet, because obviously Jesus hadn't come yet, we're living after the time where Jesus did something to defeat sin and death. Why don't you think for just a second, I know this is kind of weird, but what is death? Like, what are we even talking about? What is death? Right? It's when your spirit and your body separate, right? Well, it is that. It's when you physically die. But there was a time in the Bible when two people were walking around and they died, but they still kept walking around. Those are two first people in the world, right? Adam and Eve. Genesis 2, 17, God says, the day that you eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die in that day. So something happened when they ate the fruit. What happened? They were ashamed of their sin. They had officially stepped from innocent into the category of sinner. Now God sees them differently. Now they're ashamed of their sin. Now they're sinners deserving God's punishment. They have officially stepped into a different category. They're dead now. They move into this new category. And then it says in the next chapter, Genesis three nineteen, 
God says, for out of the dust you were taken and to the dust you shall return. Now he says, not only is your spirit separate from me, not only do we have a division, but also one day your body will go back into the ground. So apparently that's not how we were originally designed. That's why, you know, when you get old, it's not like, oh yeah, I'm really excited to die now. Like it's just, you, that doesn't, doesn't seem right because your life is a gift and God plans on people keep living. That's why you have some desire to live. That's why the idea of death freaks you out, right? Because you're just like, well, it doesn't make any sense to me. I want to keep living. Exactly. And you will. And that's what we're talking about here. Look at chapter 26, verse 19. Drop down real quick. Chapter 26, verse 19 of Isaiah. He says something about the dead of this group of Israelites. He says, your dead, the people who've died, they shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake, sing for joy, for the dew is the dew of light. Just like in the morning, right? When there's dew on the ground. It's like something's falling on these people for the first time. Just like in the morning, you get the dew on the grass. He says, this is what's gonna happen. All the people who've died in the Lord, who are right with God and they've died, guess what? They're gonna awake. The earth will give birth to the dead. It's like the, the dead are gonna come to life. What is he talking about? Well, he's talking about all the people who are right with God. Even when they die, and their spirit separate from their body. What's going to happen? What's promised, even in the book of Isaiah, what's promised? That they will live forever. Body, soul, connected. Perfect body, sinless soul, together, forever, with God. It's promised right here. You might think that's just a New Testament idea. Nope, it's right here. Isaiah 26, 19. We're asking what death was. Romans 6, 23 says, the wages of sin is death. Right, so sin deserves death. We deserve to be separate from God, obviously. We deserve to be separate from our bodies. Yes, obviously, when we sin, that's how bad it is. New Testament also says that death is going to be the last enemy that will be destroyed. Of all the enemies that there is, that's the last thing that God's going to take care of. 1 Corinthians 15, 54, he says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Death is scary because it feels like people get swallowed up. That's the experience. It's like they're there, now they're gone, but their body's still there. It's like who they are on the inside got swallowed up. Where did it go? Because that's going to be the experience. That horrible separation that we have when we die, when we see people who die, that horrible separation, it's like that's what's going to happen to death. Death will be removed forever. Death will die. The idea of separation Forever. That's going to be over in God's new world. Hebrews 2 says that Jesus came to this earth to save people from death. He came to save you from death. Hebrews 2, 14 to 15. That's a helpful verse to write down. Hebrews 2, 14 to 15. You're going to look at that in small groups. It says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. You and I, we share in flesh and blood. We're made of stuff. Flesh and blood. He himself, that's Jesus, likewise partook of the same things that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Have you ever wondered why when you think about death, it's scary? You ever thought about that? Like, why is this so scary? It's super scary and it should be scary. Death is horrible and scary. And if you're not afraid of death and you've never thought deeply about death, let me encourage you, you ought to think deeply about death. I know a lot of you have, a lot of you I've gone to grandma or grandpa's funeral, right? You know what it's like. 
for someone you love to not be there anymore. Their body's still there, but they're not there. You've experienced death in a close way. If you've never thought about death, I need you to think about death because it's so serious. And if we don't understand death, we don't understand what God is gonna do to death. He's gonna swallow up death. It says that Jesus came to deliver you and me from lifelong slavery of fear to death. That's why people in the world who have no hope, they don't know what, you ask them, what is gonna happen when you die? They're like, well, maybe I'll go to heaven, but I don't know, maybe we'll just stop existing, right? They're terrified of death. Here's what Jesus came to do. One of the things he came to do when he died, and he rose again. One of the reasons he did that is so that you would never have to be afraid of death anymore. That's why you right now, if you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, you repented of your sin, put your faith in Jesus. Here's one thing about you. You don't have to be afraid of death like you were before. That's why Paul says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's okay. Not that death is okay. Death is never okay. But you can embrace it because Jesus is going to fix it because you already know because God made the promise right here that he's going to swallow up death and victory. He's already made the promise. So that's what it means to trust God. That's what it means to trust. Do I trust God? There was a game last night that I did not like watching. Um, the Yankees and the Red Sox played. It was a Yankees-Red Sox wild card game. Um, I don't want to talk about it. But it wasn't that exciting of a game. It wasn't like it ended in a walk-off and run or anything. It wasn't like anything crazy. Um, have you ever been to a baseball game where there's like a walk-off home run? Have you ever seen that before, right? Where you're at a game and maybe it's the bottom of the ninth or bottom of the 10th or 11th or whatever. Home team's batting, right? They hit a home run. They win the game. Something interesting happens. You know when you start cheering? When do you start cheering? When he gets to hit, when the ball goes over the fence, right? Why? Is the game over? Game's not over. You've got to run the bases, right? Okay. But you trust the, the person who just hit the home run. I mean, that seems like that was the hard part, hitting the ball over the fence. But you trust that they'll round the bases, right? The game's already over. But is it over? It's not over. Have you won the victory? Basically, yeah, but it's not over yet. That's where we live right now. Jesus already hit the home run. He already hit the walk-off home run, but he's rounding the bases right now. And soon he will touch home plate and everything will be over. Death will be over at that point. Every person that you love who, who died in the Lord, what that means is people who knew God, who walked with God, all those people, you will get to know again. You'll meet them again in perfect bodies with sinless spirits in a perfect world. That is what's coming for sure, 100%. Jesus says that he is the resurrection and the life. This is what we're talking about. The idea of resurrection, living, dying, coming back to life, but not living the same old life, but living a new kind of life. Jesus was at a funeral one time, a guy named Lazarus. He's at this funeral. He talked to Lazarus' sister, Martha. And he said to her, hey, hey, you know that he'll rise again, right? And Martha said, yeah, I know, I know at the very end, you know, Isaiah talks about it, Daniel 12 talks about it, yeah, I know there's a resurrection. And Jesus says, no, 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 I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, present tense, if you are believing in me right now, though he die, yet shall he live. That's why if you're in Christ, you might die, but you will never really die. 
yeah, your spirit will leave your body, yes, but you will never really die in the sense of this old death that we've talked about because death, the sting of death has been taken away because Jesus has hit the home run. He's won the victory. He's just rounding the bases. Everyone who lives and believes in me, Jesus said, shall never die. Then he asks her a question that you should answer as well. Jesus asked Martha a question after Martha's crying there, her brother's dead. He asks her a question. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? It's most poignant, right, when someone dies in your family or one of your friends maybe. You feel this more, right? It's heavy. This is a heavy topic. You know, one of the things people do at funerals and something that Jesus even did later in John 11 is he cried, right? He cried, and that's right to do. He mourned. It's weird because it's like he knew Lazarus was going to come back right away. Why did he cry? I think he was crying because of how bad death is. He entered into the experience of the mourner, you and me. He cried. Martha cried. You probably cried too when you think of someone who's died. I don't know if you noticed what Isaiah said here. Isaiah 25, 8. Look at it. The second line there, it says, And the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. Wipe away tears from all faces. In Revelation 21, verse 4, John put it like this. Jesus will wipe away, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Same language. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. They're gone. No more death ever again. It's done. What does it mean to wait for Jesus to destroy sin and death? Well, what does it mean in a baseball game when you're watching the person around the bases? What are you doing? Do you wait to cheer until he hits home plate? You don't wait to cheer. You can cheer now. But is it officially done? It's not officially done yet. You haven't officially won. That's why in the meantime, while Jesus is rounding the bases, so to speak, guess what's going to happen? You might die. People in your family might die. Grandpa might die. Grandma might die. So you'll still feel the sting of death in that sense. But guess what? The ultimate sting is gone. If they're in Christ, ultimate sting is gone. Because they're going to live forever. And you're going to live forever. And you're going to be separated for a short time. Yes, that's true. But soon you'll be reunited. And as the words of 1 Thessalonians 4 say, and so we will always be with the Lord. So when God fixes this problem, there's never going to be that separation ever again. We'll always be with the Lord. He'll wipe away every tear from our eye. I don't know what that looks like. Um, I trust it. What, however God does that, I don't, I don't think he's going to come around with a tissue and hit every person. That just seems like that would take too long. I don't know what this means in particular, but think about it. God will wipe away the tears from your eyes when it comes to death. He will destroy sin and death forever. Anything that you think is wrong in this world, anything has two root causes, sin or death, right? Anything. Literally think about anything that you think is wrong. Unless you're thinking about something good, then you're the problem, uh, I guess. But any problem, real problem in this world has to do with sin and death. He's gonna overcome that. Now, what are we supposed to do now? Isaiah 26 answers that question. So if God makes such a big promise, In Isaiah 25, Isaiah 26 tells us what we're supposed to do. Everybody, look at Isaiah 26. Isaiah 26, verse 1. In that day, the day where there's going to be that victory, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. Isaiah 26, verse 1 says, We have a strong city. 
He set up salvation. Strong city. What did the last chapter say? It said that God's going to destroy a city. Right? I think that contrast is there on purpose, right? It's like the sinful city and the righteous city. It's like God's going to destroy that sinful city, but this righteous city, oh yeah, he has set it up. He set up salvation as walls and bulwarks. That's a strong thing around cities that would protect them from anything that goes wrong. It's like our salvation in Christ is so strong. What Jesus did is so powerful. It's bigger than any wall, stronger than any bulwark. That salvation is secure. So verse two, open the gates, open the gates, open up those doors that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. Hey, God has made the salvation. Guess who he wants in? You. The righteous nation. Who's going to accept Jesus by faith? The nation that keeps faith. They're going to come in to this salvation. You see this picture? It's like a big city. New city. Strong walls. God says, open the gates. That these people, whoever has faith in Jesus, they're coming in these gates. Now verse 3. In the meantime, you keep him in perfect peace. Isaiah 26.3. Check it out in your Bibles. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever for the Lord is an everlasting rock. Even now. Because remember, who's receiving this right here? Who's receiving this? People who are about to have their entire nation destroyed. All right, drop down to verse 20. Drop down to verse 20. Isaiah 26, 20. It says, come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. It's kind of like the picture of the, uh, the Exodus, right? Remember in the Exodus, the Passover? What was the Passover story, right? The people go in their houses. They got to put the blood over their doors. They got to hide in there. Why? Because God's judgment is passing over. Same picture here. He says, go, go to your chamber, go to your room. All right, get your family, hide there because God's anger and his wrath on this world, it's coming, but hide Verse 21, for behold, the Lord is coming out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity and the earth will disclose the bloodshed on it. All the secret stuff that people did that they didn't think they were gonna get caught with, all that exposed by God's wrath. No more will it cover its slain. It's a promise that God's gonna do something about this problem. But in the meantime, what do we do? Well, it says that if your mind is stayed on God, even though death is still a reality in this world, what do we have to fear? Well, if our mind is stayed on the Lord, guess what God does to you? Keeps you in perfect peace. There's no change in his circumstance. There's no change in the situation. They're still about to be destroyed by all these foreign oppressors. But here's what God says. If you have your mind stayed on me and you want to focus on me, I'll keep you in perfect peace. Same thing's true today. Point number three, I'd love for you to write this down. Overcome anxiety by trusting God and his promises. Overcome anxiety by trusting God and his promises. There is no other way to overcome worry, fear, all that stuff. There's no other way than trusting in God and his promises. Because guess what? This anxiety is legitimate, right? This is a real fear. This is not afraid of maybe doing bad on a test. This is like, I'm gonna have my whole family killed by a foreign enemy, right? This is a big thing to be anxious about. He says, even you, have your mind focused on God, stayed on God, attached to God. The strongest language you can use. Keep you in perfect peace. Just like these walls, these bulwarks, protect this city. Says God is going to protect your heart if you have your heart stayed on trusting God. Psalm 46, one and two says, God is our refuge and strength 
a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. We will not fear. There's a lot of things that can make you afraid, a lot of things that can make you anxious or worried, but here's the thing. If you are trusting God, you need to keep trusting God. Trust God's promises. Keeps you in perfect peace. Deuteronomy 32 talks about this idea of God as a rock. You might have seen that in verse four. It says, the Lord is an everlasting rock. It's a place that you can hide. Deuteronomy 32, four says the rock, talking about God, not, not Dwayne Johnson, talking about God, right? The rock, his way is perfect. For all his ways are justice, perfect, righteous. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, no sin in him. God will never wrong you. God will always keep his promises. You can trust him, rely on him. Just and upright is he. Once you turn to the New Testament, look at something Jesus said about this. Matthew chapter six, I want you to see this. Because the problem is, there's a lot of Christians, people who say, I follow Christ, but you're full of anxiety. Maybe that describes you. So yeah, I got a lot of anxiety, a lot of things I'm afraid of. Okay, all right. Jesus talks about that. Matthew chapter six, verse 25, check it out. He says, therefore, after he's just talked about God and money, he says, hey, if you're gonna make money your idol, don't do that. You can't serve God and money. He says, because of that, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Don't be anxious about your life. What you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body that's talking probably about your physical health, or what's put on you, your clothes, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing, right? What are you anxious about? What gets you freaked out and nervous? Think this through. Now I'm talking to you. What gets you anxious? Might not be your clothes, right? For some of you, maybe um, it's your clothes. Others of you, it might be that you're not as good at certain things as others, or, or maybe um, you've got a person that you know, just really scares you. Hopefully not a person who's scary. I don't know what I was getting at there. I don't know. Your teachers, your small group leader, me, I don't know. Uh, maybe I make you anxious. <laughs> don't laugh at me, Francesca. What are you anxious about? Because here's the thing, right? The big problem, and this is what Isaiah is getting at, and God is really getting at, and Jesus gets at. The big problem has been taken care of. So if you can trust God with the biggest problems, death, you can trust God with the little problems too. So don't be anxious about those things. Then Jesus says, hey, stop looking at yourself for a second, which is point number one for not wanting to do anxious things. Stop looking at yourself. Look outside. Look at the birds of the air. Look at them. They neither sow nor reap. The birds, they just eat whatever they find. Right? And God feeds them. That's weird. Your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they are? Maybe some of you have said things and talked about yourself in ways that you act like you're worth less than birds. You're not worth less than birds, just to let you know. If that's the only thing you get from tonight, you are not less valuable than a bird. You are more valuable than a bird, way more valuable. Why? Because God has made you in his image. He cares about every last person in here, much more than he cares about birds. But God feeds them, he'll take care of you. Verse 27, and which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? Can your anxiety and your stressed out, worried, oh, can that do anything to change any of your circumstances? Answer, Jesus says, you can't even live an hour longer, even if you wanted to. 
You can't even change anything. God's plan is his plan. Verse 28, why are you anxious about your clothing? Right? For you, that might not be clothing. Maybe you're anxious about which dress to put on and, you know, as opposed to this. Anx- okay, so I have to say, anxious about clothing is like, do I have clothing or am I naked today? Like, that's more about what they're talking about. Not so much like, I'm anxious about my clothing. Should I wear the heels today or should I wear the sneakers today? Did the heels work with the jeans? I don't know. Like, I'm kind of wearing shorts. So I don't know if I'm supposed to. No, that's not what anxious about clothing is. It's the saying, will I be taken care of by God? Don't be anxious about your clothing. Consider the lilies of the field. Look at the flowers, okay? They grow. They don't toil or spin. There's nothing they do to work hard. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory, all of his fancy clothing, never looked as pretty as a flower. Never had as good a clothing as God gives to these stupid little flowers. Sorry if you're a flower collector. Reason I call them stupid little flowers. It's not because they're actually stupid. It's because in comparison to you, look what it says about the flowers. What, what happens to the flowers? They grow up for like two seconds, right? If you guys have flowers at your house, you know your mom puts them in the vase and tries to make them live forever. They'll, they never live forever. They always die, right? Give them a week. They're dead. Then you put some solution in them. She gets some little powder that she puts in the water to try to make them live longer. And then they die again. Does this happen to you? Your moms do this, right? I don't get it, man. Whatever. Anyway, they don't work hard at all. These, these flowers, they're alive today and tomorrow they're just thrown in the oven. They're just kindling for the fire. Will he not much more clothe you? Won't God take care of you and the problems that you have? Oh, you of little faith. That is the problem with anxiety right there. If you are anxious about your clothing or your health or what's gonna happen next in your life or your family, here's the problem. Even if they're big legitimate problems, here's the problem. Jesus says, oh, you of little faith, you're not trusting me right now. You're not trusting me like you should. If you're anxious, you are not trusting God like you should, period. Verse 31, therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, the non-Christians, they, they worry about those things. And your heavenly father knows that you need all of them. There is nothing that you need that God doesn't know you need. Right? So you can't say I'm anxious because no, nobody's even considered this. Nobody, I, I haven't even thought about it. Well, God has already thought about it. So stop being anxious. Gentiles, they seek after those things, but you, Christians, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You have whatever you need. Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will have enough anxiety for itself. Sufficient is the day for its own trouble. If you're anxious about things, I know we don't talk about that all the time here in the narrow, but I need you to see that um, your anxiety says something about your trust in God. Only one of those can exist in your heart at the same time. To the proportion that one grows, the other shrinks. This weekend, uh, we had some baby shower for us, and uh, we brought balloons back in our car, and I was popping them when I was driving. It was really fun. You know, I had my knife out, and I was, like, poking it, and Alexander was like, stop, it's really loud, but it was really fun. Um, and they were helium balloons. So they were like loud and you didn't know, should I open the windows? Because if I open the windows and pop the helium balloon with the knife behind my head, like what's next? Like, you know, but it, every time we popped a balloon, it kind of felt like the car was going to explode because they were helium. There was a little moment of that. Um, Alexander and I were talking about like um, air pressure. We got into a physics conversation. Have you ever noticed that uh, when you have all the doors shut and all the windows shut and you slam the door, it takes more to slam the door. 
But if one of the windows is open or the other door is open, all it takes is a little bit and the door just like slams shut really hard. Air pressure. Because when it's there, only so much air can be there or it compresses. Now it's a dumb illustration, but here's the thing. You can only have so much in your heart. Either it's going to be anxiety or trust. Okay, if one's going to go in, the other has to come out somehow. If you're anxious about your life or your clothes or how, what people think of you and all that stuff, you can't trust God and do that at the same time. If you're going to be fully trusting God, those anxious thoughts don't really stay there. Philippians chapter four says that the real cure to anxiety is stop thinking about yourself, look to God and pray. Pray, go to God. It says, don't be anxious about anything. Anything? What about the really bad stuff? Don't be anxious about anything. He's literally about to say in like a couple verses, yeah, sometimes I get thrown in prison. Sometimes I don't eat. And like, then he's just said, don't be anxious about anything. Well, Paul, you're anxious about that stuff, right? He says, no, I'm not. What are you talking about? Not anxious about your food or your clothing? Paul was thrown in prison. No, he says, don't be anxious about anything. Here's what you need to do. With everything, by prayer and supplication, that's requests. Let your, with thanksgiving, which needs to be a part of your prayer too. Again, like if you're anxious, you probably haven't thought of, hey, what's three things that I'm thankful for right now? You're just concerned about the three things you don't have. How do you solve anxiety? Prayer, asking with thanksgiving to God, Give him your requests. And here's what happens next. Verse seven, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, doesn't even make sense to non-Christians, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Protect you. Like that wall, right? That, that city wall that was described in Isaiah 26, like God's wall of salvation that he has to protect his people. Anxiety happens when you don't trust God. The whole thing here today was about death, right? It's kind of a big topic, the biggest topic. Something that happens to a lot of you when you watch movies, you get sucked in. Do we have any criers in here? Any movie criers? Yeah? Yep. Do you raise your hand? Okay, good. My wife's the only one that I know for sure is a crier here. We're just watching some random movie and she starts crying. Like, dude, you Sometimes I get like insecure. I'm like, is this saying something about me? Like, like if it's a movie about like, I don't know, like, I don't know, some breakup and she's crying. Like, did I do something? Like, this freaks me out, right? No, that's not my point. My point is you're a crier. If you really get into it, maybe some of you guys, you say, I'm not a crier, but I get super in to the movies. I, I get so into the uh, superhero movies, so into those movies, and I just want to be like the characters and all that stuff. Okay, you're into it too. You're just into it in a different way, okay? You're just as invested as the girls who cry. But here's the deal. You get invested. That's what the movie wants you to do. They want to pull you in. They want to get you into the story. They want you to feel what the characters are feeling. Here's the problem that I have with getting into the movie like that and with being a crier. I'm not really either. Here's why. Because most of the movies I see, it's like, yeah, I already know it's going to happen. It's this guy's going to die and this guy's going to kill this person. And okay, I already know. There's a certain level of like, I'm not that connected. Well, when you know the end of the movie, it kind of is harder to cry about things. Some of you still want to cry at the movie. Maybe that's why you watch the movie. I don't know. But here's the deal. If you know the end of the movie, you already know. 
If you said, I'm not going to cry, I already know the end of the movie. I know what's going to happen. I know that they're going to get back together happily ever after. I don't know. I, I know what the end of the movie is. Okay, that's different in the way that you watch the movie. Here's the thing. With the biggest things in life and death, God has told you the end. He's told you what's going to happen. Does that mean you can't cry during the movie, so to speak? No, that doesn't mean that. Just means that when you cry, you need to know, I trust the ending. I know that Jesus is going to defeat death. I know that I can trust him even now when my situation is very hard, when things in my life don't go the way I want to, I know I can trust God. I can get rid of that anxiety because I'm trusting in God because he keeps those who trust him in perfect peace. You got to believe that. Let's pray. God, help us with this. I know this is a hard one. Think about life and death and anxiety. Just thank you for your word. It's so clear that you will swallow up death forever. You will take care of this big problem, problem that we all face. I pray that we would not be anxious in the meantime, that we would rely on you, trust in you, look to Jesus as the solution. We know that he is the resurrection and the life. We believe that with all of our hearts. For even that truth would help us not be anxious about the little things like he talked about in Matthew 6, not anxious about our clothing or what we wear or anything like that. Just ask that you would help us trust you more. Pray that our faith would grow, as we talked about in the last sermon, that we want to trust you with our whole hearts. I pray that our faith would only grow tonight, that we'd see your promises and the fulfillment of those promises, and we would trust you every day. That would make an impact on the way we think about school and ourselves and, and our friend groups. I pray that would make a huge impact on all of that, because we know that you win in the end. We pray these things in Jesus' name.